If you or someone you know has been a victim of sexual assault, we believe you, you are not alone, and it wasn't your fault. This case contains graphic descriptions of sexual violence against women perpetrated by a stranger. Listener discretion is advised. Between 2001 and 2008, Manchester and Vernon, Connecticut would be haunted by an unknown man invading homes and raping the women of their town. It would take 19 years to find a suspect, but not all of them would live to see the day. This is the case of the victims of sexual assault from Manchester and Vernon, Connecticut. Hello, hello, and welcome back to The Ties That Find. I am your host, Rachel, and this is going to be a pretty somber case, even though they all are. Um, this is going to be this is going to be pretty rough. So if any details become too much for any of us out there, definitely just stop the player, move on and find some kitten videos. <laughs> just want to, of course, always take the time to thank you for the likes and the shares and the interactions. Sharing the podcast is so appreciated. We are such a tiny little niche in the true crime community, and we don't have a lot of listeners still. I think it is because it's such a tiny niche. These are usually stranger on stranger crimes. So there's no family drama. There's no relationship drama. There's no drug drama. Um, there's also um, most of these are these cases because they are solved by forensic genealogy. They are cases where there's really no guns involved. There's really no, you know, conspiracies for murder. There's really just uh, it really just is a most of the time stranger on stranger, up close and personal type of case. Um, so it, when, aside from when we do have our does, of course, does are few and far between because I do want to, if possible, have the resolution of the actual murder if a murder took place before I report on it. So best I can hope for is please definitely share the show and um, hopefully we can get some some more listenership. And of course, we want to grow the DNA database for people that have opted in. If you would like to support the show, you can do so by buying me a coffee at Buy Me a Coffee. I would like to just be able to cover the cost of the show. And then, of course, I want to be able to donate to the DNA Dough Project for a Ties That Find sponsored dough. So normally what I do is um, I might go looking for different cases. Then I'll say maybe it's not enough information right now. I'll just put it to the side, but I will save it in a folder on the computer. And then when it comes time to pick a case for the next episode, I'll go back to that folder, have a look-see, see what's interesting, see if there's any other information out there, and then maybe settle on that particular episode or that particular case for that week. Um, in this case, I came across um, the actual police uh, affidavit for the arrest warrant for the John Doe, and which I'll get into more detail later. But when I took a further look into the details of the affidavit, we actually have a lot of information about what transpired during the attacks. So as soon as I read some of those sentences, I put my computer on sleep and ran to the liquor store. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I don't normally need an excuse to go to the liquor store for a bottle of wine, but in this case, I knew um, I wasn't going to get through it. So yes, yeah, so that's where we are. I guess it's one thing to listen to an episode about um, these horrific crimes after all the research has been done, because you're not reading the sources that they came from. You're getting the gist of it. Um, but as a podcaster and the person who actually does all the research, it was pretty rough. So just keep in mind that there is stuff here that was not reported on, but that did take place. 
And just one last thing, I will say that we are talking about a lady named Helen, and she has an adult granddaughter, or possibly an adult granddaughter in 1964. That's not true. I forgot how to do my math. So she possibly had a granddaughter, but she was definitely not an adult granddaughter. So with that said, let's get into it. So we're just going to start with our victims. Um, Every victim is going to have a name assigned to her. We don't know any of our victims' names. We don't know any specifics about their lives. And we don't know um, where exactly they lived. Not like it really matters. Um, These are people. These are women. These are the women of our communities. And they were horribly wronged. So victim one is an 84-year-old woman living in Manchester, Connecticut in 2001. Now, I always go back to the popular name, one of the few popular, pick a popular name for baby girls from the year that they were born. So we're going to call victim number one, Helen. If she was 84 in 2001, then she was born in 1916, 1917, which is during World War I. And so I just want to take a second to understand and to really put ourselves in her place. She's lived through so much. She's lived through both world wars and all the wars since then. And she was in her 30s when World War II was being fought. So maybe, you know, did she have family members, brothers, a husband even, who actually went overseas to fight? Maybe she was one of the two million women who entered the workforce during the war because all the men had been shipped overseas. She also witnessed a slew of technological advances in her life that we all take for granted today. Of course, I'm the first one. Like, she saw the evolution of telephones where... We finally have telephones that don't need an operator on the other end of the line, literally plugging you into the person that you're trying to call. And those telephones ended up being able to be held in your hand and you can even leave your house with it. She also saw the evolution of so many household appliances being transformed and being made more efficient and easier for us to work with. We went to space. Women became more prominent in the workplace. Rock and roll became mainstream. And think about this. If Helen had a granddaughter... She could have given that girl money to go see the Beatles in New York City in 1964. And I just said a granddaughter because that's how old Helen is. And she does live alone. She lives in the Squire Village apartment complex in Manchester, Connecticut. And on August 6th of 2001, a Monday afternoon, she's sitting on her couch in her apartment, living her best old lady life. And then evil walks in. So like I said, the details of these rapes are actually coming directly from the arrest warrant that was issued for the man responsible for them. And the warrant and charges are signed off on in 2010. And at the time, his identity was unknown. But because there is a statute of limitations on bringing charges against the perpetrators of a sexual assault, and the police would end up having a terrible time finding this asshole, they were able to essentially charge the owner of the DNA found at the crime scenes of these four attacks. So good on them, because too often we see men not brought to justice because they were not identified within the statute time frame, and they didn't pursue this John Doe defendant angle. And this is your last warning before I get into these details, because it's pretty horrific. I don't know your level. I don't know your threshold for that's too much. So that's why I'm just putting it out there. So back to Helen. She's sitting in her living room apart- in her apartment, and some man walks in through the unlocked front door. He walks up to her, 
grabs a couch pillow or cushion of some kind and covers her face with it and tells her, don't scream. He also tells her that the less she struggles, the quicker he'll be gone. And then he gets right up against her, gropes her under her shirt, pulls her pants and underwear down. And then he opens his own pants, fondles himself, and orders her to lay down on the couch. So, of course, Helen is absolutely terrified. She's horrified. She just she doesn't know what is happening. But she's also elderly. She's 84 years old. And she's not as limber or able-bodied as she used to be. And Helen actually has to plead with him, telling him that she is not physically able to lay down. But this asshole is not discouraged. Instead, he decides to continue his attack, and he rapes her right there on the couch while she is slumped back against it. When he is done, he gets off of her, grabs some tissues to clean himself up, and puts himself back together. He tells her that she'd better not tell anyone because he would know. And with all this trauma that Helen is experiencing these last few moments, she has enough wits about her to ask him, where are you from? And he tells her that he works right here at the apartment complex. And after that, he leaves. Now, soon after, Helen does what must be the hardest thing to do after being threatened with a repeat attack. She actually does report the home invasion and her sexual assault to Lifeline, the medical alert service that, yes, we make fun of during daytime commercials. But it really does, in fact, save lives. And a representative at Lifeline connects her to the local police department. Helen will have a rape kit completed. And because she's not truly certain that the attacker ejaculated inside her, maybe it happened under her, whatever, the police take the couch cushions as evidence as well. Helen describes the man as in his 30s, white, with dark hair and a mustache, wearing shorts and a white t-shirt. Although we do want to keep in mind with a pillow in front of your face, you may not have the best recollection of what the person looked like. Now, right away, Manchester Police Department submits the evidence to its forensic lab, and once a profile is created, they run it through CODIS. This is the law enforcement database that we all know that contains profiles of people that are sometimes charged. Most of the time, they're convicted fel felony offenders, um, but they are hoping to get a match on this guy with somebody who has already been placed in the system. Unfortunately, nothing comes back. So they do what they can with the other evidence or clues that they gather to find this piece of shit. Now, he had told her that he works at the apartment complex, right? So that actually would explain why he wouldn't be worried about anybody else in the house when she, when he or in the apartment when he went in to attack her. So it is reasonable to believe that perhaps he did work there or he worked in the area or is often in the area because at least he knows that she's not that she may be the only person that lives there. And so police have investigated all the apartment employees, and unfortunately, they come back with dead ends. At this time, here in 2021, Helen has likely passed because she would be 104 years old today. So she would not live long enough to see her rapist arrested or tried. The next few homes have other people in them, and the victims were threatened into enduring their attacks in silence. So now we have victim number two in December of 2004. She's a 57-year-old woman, also living in Manchester, and we estimate she was born around 1947, and we're going to call her Linda. 
Linda grew up getting milkshakes at the soda shop, possibly marrying and having babies in the 60s. And we don't know if she lived the majority of her life in Connecticut, but by 2004, it was just her and her mother that were living in the home. And on December 9th, 2004, this attack is going to take place in the middle of the night. It's about 1 a.m. and Linda's mother is sleeping on the living room couch and Linda is asleep in her bedroom. She's awakened by a rustling sound. And when she opens her eyes, there's a tall man wearing a ski mask standing in the doorway. He tells her to be quiet, walks completely into the room, and shuts the door behind him. Soon enough, he is at the head of her bed, exposing himself to her and ordering her to perform oral sex on him. She complied, and then he began to grope her and digitally penetrate her. Next, he places the pillow over her face. It's believed not to smother her, remember, but to keep her from looking at him. And he climbed on top of her on the bed and began to rape her. And while doing so, they actually have a conversation. He asked her when the last time she had sex was, but he was much more brutal with the words he used. And he told her, of course, not to tell anyone about this. And Linda pleaded with him not to hurt her mother, who was sleeping outside in the living room. And he replied that maybe he would. And as he continued raping her, the monster on top of Linda asked if she had any money in the house. She told him she did not normally keep cash around, but there may be some in the hutch in the kitchen. After he was done, and again put himself back together, he walked out the bedroom door, reminding her again not to tell anyone, because if she did, he would come back. And it would take a few hours before Linda was able to gather the courage and the strength to leave her bedroom and investigate the house. Her mother was safe and sound, thankfully, and the man had left. Now, as it turns out, he had come in through the unlocked patio door on the side of the house, and it's believed that he left the same way. She had a lot of random items out there. It was pretty cluttered, like pretty much all of us, you know, any kind of sunroom that we have for storage or any like a garbage, like a garage. And there was no light out there at all. She said, she told the police, she said it would have been dark out there. It's dark out there. So he would have had to be really careful navigating through all of it in the dark in order to get to the door. So had he scoped this patio out before? Had he stocked this house before this happened? And again, how did he know that there was no man in the house or anyone else that would confront him during this attack? It was just Linda, who's 57, and her mom, who's likely in her like 70s or 80s. So how did he know that no one else was there? And it was just really sad because part of what Linda tells the police is that she feels that maybe he attacked her sexually because he was frustrated with what it took to get to the door to be able to break in because maybe all he wanted to do was rob her. The forensics lab was not able to produce a complete offender DNA profile from Linda's rape kit. Um, it is unclear why. Possibly he didn't ejaculate. But for this reason, the profile was not submitted to CODIS. It would, however, provide enough information to argue that there is a link between these two victims' perpetrators. And Linda believed that he was white and in his 20s. So the events that took place in both Helen's and Linda's attacks and the DNA profile comparisons are similar enough that for now, we will say that they are likely carried out by the same man. Victim number three. Victim number three is a 37-year-old single mother of a young boy, and they also live alone in Manchester. 
And on March 23rd, 2007 now, it's just a regular night for mom and child. And the boy went to bed in his own room at about nine. And the victim, we'll call her Jennifer, locks up the house at about 11 p.m. before she goes to bed. So in this case, the victim is in the habit of locking all the doors and checking all the windows regularly before bed. And apparently she even had a deadbolt that she used on the front door. But somehow, some way, he still gets in. It's around 1.30 a.m. when Jennifer is woken up by strange noises and sees a man in the doorway and bolts out of bed. And she yells out, who's there? Who's there? And when she gets no response, she begins screaming. And this prompts the home invader to charge her and cover her mouth and toss her on her bed, telling her, don't scream. If you don't scream, your child won't get hurt. God, how does he know this? Then he begins pulling up her nightgown to get to her underwear. He grabs a pillow from the bed and, of course, again, places it over her face. All the while, Jennifer is pleading with him not to do this. No, no, please, please don't. But he ignores her, and then he proceeds to rape her, complimenting her body. And just like the other times, he asks her about any money that she has in the house, and she tells him she might have some cash around the house somewhere out in the living room or the kitchen, and just please, just please stop assaulting her and just leave. This piece of shit was wearing some kind of a hoodie, and his voice seemed muffled like he had something covering his face, she told police. And so at one point, Jennifer tries to pull it off of him. But in reaction, he punches her in the face and orders her not to touch him, getting the pillow back over her eyes to keep her from seeing him and to muffle her screams. So finally, this piece of shit gets off of Jennifer and leaves, but not before stealing her purse. And after the investigation of the home, it's determined that he got into the house through the sunroom, not the front door. And this one, just like Linda's, was actually cluttered with junk. So again, he's climbing around stuff in the dark to get up to the door, but he's still able to keep quiet. And Jennifer had reported that her attacker could be black, about five, five about five eight, about 180 pounds-ish, not sure. Um, a rape kit was completed, of course, and her clothes and bedding were taken as evidence, just like the prior victims. I hate these details. It's it's horrific. But at the same time, you know, it is important because as much as we might talk about a rape, it's so much more than the four-letter word. When we acknowledge that a person is a victim of a rape or other type of sexual assault, and we don't know the details, it can be pretty easy to just react like, whoa, wow, that, wow, that, that sucks. But when we have these details of these cases like this, we are really forced to put ourselves in the perspective of the victim. We can see it in our mind's eye. And this is what this particular person went through. We don't know her. We don't even know her name. But this is a part of her life experience. And for what? She did nothing to deserve this. No one does. She was in her own home where her and her child should be the safest and she was sleeping at her most vulnerable. And we know we are hearing about these things from secondhand, you know, when we can't do anything to stop it, it's already been done. Um, but these details, these are the experiences, the horrors that one human being has perpetrated against another so often that we can't even count. And the victims have to relive these attacks over and over and over again for the rest 
of their lives. And now there may be support groups that some victims attend and surround themselves with people with similar experiences, and they begin, they may be able to heal to some extent that way. And I'm sure that these groups are very helpful. And at the end of the day, each victim still has had a particular experience that no one else can relate to. Remembering that only two people were there at the time. There was a victim and there was a rapist. And when a victim looks back on the attack, she's feeling fear, dread, anger, vulnerability. And then on the other side, the piece of shit that did this to her, he's feeling powerful, satisfied macho, stealth, and likely getting worked up to do it again. So where was I going? Oh, sorry. So the reason for me, at least, for going through all the details in these episodes is to articulate that the trauma that rape victims endure for, what, since the dawn of time, since women were less than men, I mean, has it really gone away, for the life of the human race, sexual assault has been treated as if it was just another form of violence, like beating up someone, right? Well, you really shouldn't have done that to her. It wasn't very nice. I'm sorry that happened to you. Now, this is perfectly clear in the law. And that's why all these pieces of shit for centuries have either never been brought up on charges or given these tiny little sentences because the law allows it to happen. A year here, time served there, we don't believe you, a perpetrator is going to accuse the female of asking for it in some way by her behavior, by what she's wearing, or the fact that she's got breasts. She's, there's a million reasons why a perpetrator would be able to excuse his behavior. And then the courts over time, not even the courts, it's the actual officers on the beat, the detectives that are taking the rape complaint. And then they go and they talk to the perpetrator. Look at Bruce Lindahl's case. So yeah, they have minimal time that they're sentenced and then they get out on parole with what, within a year or two, and then they get released and then they do it again. And we also have to consider that this, this asinine practice of these statute of limitations. Now before DNA technology, without any eyewitnesses saying, yeah, I saw him break into her house and then I heard her screaming, then where's the proof? But now that we have these scientific capabilities, and piece of shit rapists are still perpetuating their attacks because they know they're still more likely to get away with it than they are going to than they are going to be at being locked up. Now we have all these rape kits that are piling up, sitting on shelves, and yes, some police departments are actually throwing them out to make room. They're making room for other more current evidence boxes. They're making room for cleaning supplies. They, for whatever reason, just don't. They just gave up. They just said, oh, well, I guess we're not going to test them. Hundreds of rape kits, that millions across the country are not being tested. And if you've got a five-year deadline, how is that going to work out? I am a victim. How can I bring charges before this five-year deadline, whatever the statute is in my county or my state, if you won't test my kit? Test my fucking kit. So in the end, back in the day, and even now, here in the 21st century, too many women are hearing too many times by police departments. I'm really sorry that happened to you, ma'am, but I got to get back to work. 
So what are we to do? We have to be clear here. Every rape report is not just a man raped me. It is. He came into my home uninvited. He tied me up. He forced himself on me and in me. He said this to me. He made me do this. He would not let me do that. He said he would hurt my kid. He said he would do it again. And I know he can. Because even though we don't know who he is, he knows where I live. So when we have these cold sexual assault cases and the victims and the district attorneys and the detectives cannot make any headway on bringing charges against the suspect, they have to still watch the clock. Every jurisdiction has some kind of deadline for applying for an arrest warrant against the perpetrator of a sexual violence attack. This is because apparently the law still believes that after a few years, whatever the particular statute is for the offense, five years, seven, 10, 20, whatever, why bother pursuing it in the courts? Right? I mean, come on. It sucks you were raped, but it's been years now and you didn't die. So if you died, then that would be different. There's no statute of limitations on murder. So it's really too late now in your case. Sorry. Why don't you come to us the next time when you're dead and then we'll let you bring it up to us when you finally find him 15 years later. For now, you need to find him before the statute runs out or you're screwed again. So yeah, (laughs) Rachel's going off on a tangent again, but that's what it is. It is what it is. What we really need to do is give kudos here to the detectives across the nation that apply for these arrest warrants and they're just labeling them with the John Doe that owns such and such DNA profile. Because their names will be known eventually as long as the police department doesn't give up, as long as they're not tossing those rape kids in the garbage. And for departments that don't do this, get the fuck on it. All right, let's get back. So now police are saying to themselves, he's got to be scoping these places out. Not only that, but two out of these three victims, their streets were actually in neighborhoods. I think they called it the maze in the neighborhood because it's a, it's not like a grid system in that part of town. It's more like, um, you know, just roads that are con- curving and cul-de-sacs and, you know, bends and dead ends and stuff like that. So you really have to know where you're going in order, in order to get there. You don't get, it's like a no outlet type neighborhood. You, you need to know where you're going if you're going to get in there, otherwise you're just going to get lost. So they believe that it's someone that does live and work nearby. It actually comes up that possibly they're going to, that they should even do DNA swabs and sticks on people that are government employees, police officers, firefighters, you know, I guess like local government workers that, you know, are out on the streets a lot, but they ended up just just deciding not to do it because probably it would take too much time and money and they probably figure that it's, it's fine. Now the fourth victim and the final victim, she's going to live in Vernon, Connecticut, which is right next door to Manchester. This is really just like, you know, you cross, you know, you go, go to the other side of the neighborhood and you're actually, you're not in Manchester anymore. You're just in Vernon. This woman, She's 61 years old, which makes her born in around 46, 47. And according to popular baby names, we're going to call her Barbara. Barbara had fallen asleep on her living room couch on January 16th, 2008, a Wednesday night, 
another weeknight, by the way. And yes, she lived alone. She thinks that she fell asleep sometime around 10. So sometime after that, she was woken up by the feeling of something being pushed against her face. When she came to, she realized a man that she did not know was smothering her with one of her couch pillows. He told her he wouldn't hurt her. He just wanted money. So he allowed her to get off the couch, making sure to keep the pillow in front of her face to block her from seeing him so she could get her wallet. And she had about $200, which she gave him, but then he didn't leave. Instead, he told her to walk back to her bedroom and lay down on her bed. So there's, there's more details in this arrest warrant than I'm willing to articulate here. And we've already gone over some other victims' experiences, but essentially he forced her to masturbate touch him sexually, and he vaginally raped her, all the while talking dirty to her in grotesque and horrific ways. And again, he is repeatedly threatening her to not tell anyone or he will know and he will come back and hurt her again. And when he is done, he leaves again through the back door. Barbara describes him as being in his mid-20s, about five foot nine and about 160 pounds. So this is all pretty similar One victim so far has said that he might be black, um, but might be like light skinned. But still remember, this is all happening at night, aside from Helen, who was the first victim and she, her, her attack took place during the day. So it's very easy to maybe mistake someone for black when they're white or white when they're black, when you're literally in the middle of the night and it's in the dark, aside from any kind of maybe possible, you know, lingo or words that they might say then you, you may not really be able to tell if the person what race the person is. She said that he seemed like he was drunk and he was wearing a silver watch and he sounded like he had a Russian or some other European accent. A rape kit was performed for Barbara's attack as well and her clothes and her bedding were taken in as evidence. So we have a lot of the same MOs here across all cases without even looking at the DNA analysis yet. All attacks are by strangers. All of them take place in the victim's home and all are home invasions. All of them are told don't scream and are threatened with a repeat attack if they report the crime. All are forced to keep a pillow over their faces and to not look at him. All are alone or have another person in the home who is not considered a threat. And the perpetrator knows this in advance. And he robbed three out of the four of them. And although the sexual acts may differ, They all end with him using some kind of tissue or Kleenex to clean himself off and the victim after he ends the assault. And all victims are not 100% sure if he ejaculated at all, and some even say that he was not able to keep an erection. Lastly, for his physical description, they agree that he is a man in his 20s, possibly white, three out of four say he's white, and a medium build. Now, by the next year, in early 2009, Barbara, who, remember, is in Vernon, her suspect's profile gets a hit on CODIS, and it hits up against the three rapes that occurred in prior years over in Manchester, right next door. So now there are two police departments, and they are going to meet up, and they're going to work the cases together. And here we have Detectives James Moore of the Manchester PD and Don Skews of the Vernon PD. They work the cases, although what else can they do at this point except hope for CODIS. And then ultimately in February, 2010, they decide to submit an arrest warrant and press charges against 
John Doe identified by DNA profile in the warrant narrative. So I'm just going to read here the summation of the investigation from the warrant up to 2010. Quote, the officers and detectives who assisted in these investigations accumulated hundreds of names during canvases in and around the crime scenes. Hundreds of buccal swabs were obtained during these canvases and have failed to match any DNA profiles in the state or national DNA databases. With the knowledge that offender DNA databases both in Connecticut and nationally grow with the introduction of sexual and felony offenders, these affiants have confidence a suspect will be identified who otherwise has eluded detection by various means to include flight to avoid prosecution or lengthy incarceration in Connecticut or another jurisdiction. End quote. So to sum up, they are essentially telling the courts, you know, we've done our due diligence. We've checked the DNA on hundreds of possible suspects. They've come up with no matches. But because CODIS is constantly being updated with new convicted felons, and because this guy is a repeat offender, we believe that he will eventually end up in the database. And we want these rapes to be on the list of charges when that day comes. So very good. Thank God. Now, I wish more victims could have detectives like more in SKUs in their cases. I did go to the RAIN website to see if I could get the statute of limitation laws for Connecticut, and pretty quickly my mind started to hurt. (laughs) Depending on the circumstances of the rape, their victim's age, whether or not the rapist and the victim were married even, um, and other like aggravating factors, the status can be anywhere from five years to 20 years. So please visit the RAIN website to find the laws for your state and the different circumstances that may apply. So now they have a warrant and they wait and they have to wait about nine years. But in February of last year, Kristen, believe it's Sassanuski, she is a deputy director of forensic biology and DNA at the Division of Scientific Services in Connecticut. Whew, that's a mouthful. She gets approval for a $1.4 million grant that is going to turn this case around and finally get our answers that we're looking for. Now the police have some money finally for these genealogical searches and she sends an evidence sample to Bode Technologies. Bode, much like Parabon, they complete the analysis and then they work on the family map. They are able to get information for the family map and zero in on a suspect using family tree DNA and GEDmatch. And on May 28th, 2020, just three months after Sassanuski gets the money from the research, the Vernon and Manchester, Connecticut Police Departments announced the arrest of Angelo Aliano Jr. for multiple rapes spanning seven years. Okay, so who is Angelo Aliano Jr.? Who is this piece of shit? He's a fucking firefighter, folks. Or at least was until his arrest. Yes, a fucking firefighter. Piece of shit Aliano spent his whole life in Connecticut, graduating from East Catholic High School in 1991, and then attending community college two years after that. He was a member of a volunteer fire department for a few years. He was an EMT and a paramedic for two separate ambulance companies. And then he was finally hired by the Manchester Fire Department at the end of August in 1997. So Aliano was 28 in 2001 when Helen was attacked and 35 by the time Barbara was attacked. And now on the outside, 
he's a great guy. Community-oriented, medically trained, working for the Manchester Fire Department, a dedicated employee. And all the while, all of these attacks took place while he was employed at Manchester. And at one point, he was even elected as a union leader for his company. Now, he has two children. And I briefly searched his name on Google for photographs, came across what looks like a Twitter update of possibly a son. And um, after that, I didn't want to go any further because I don't want to, I'm not looking to intrude on these kids. Um, I'm not sure if he's actually currently married, but he does have kids. And the kid was young. The kid was like not a teenager. So the kid, even though Aliano might be 47 at this point, his kids are still relatively young. According to his defense lawyer, he is a family man. Hmm. However, police were actually able to get him to go down to the Vernon Police Department once they got the tip on him from Bow Technologies because they wanted to talk to him about an unrelated domestic violence report. So he might be a big deal at the fire department, but up until just last year when he was arrested, it's pretty clear he does have some violent tendencies. Now, once he was there and he was being questioned about this recent domestic violence incident, they did execute the search warrant for his cheek swab for the four rape cases that we've been discussing here. So maybe he isn't the family man that he proposes to be after all. And check this out. Even though Aliana was fired, like the day after his arrest, according to Connecticut pension law, even if this piece of shit is found guilty, he's still going to get his pension. It seems that when they wrote the law, they didn't think about felony convictions or violent acts. So maybe they didn't, or maybe they didn't care. I don't know. But I guess we'll just have, have to hope for the best that we can. But if he does get the money, the money's going to his family, especially just for his kids' sakes. Okay, so we have to ask, as we always do, do we think there would have been a suspect without the family map? Possibly. They did for a while think that perhaps the suspect was part of the essential services of the town seeing as how he was targeting houses on those no-outlet-type streets. So if anyone working the cases decided maybe again to revisit that idea and then actually get the, the cheek swabs, they could have found him that way since he still was part of the department um, when he was arrested in 2020. I do wonder, though, like how much time and money would have that have cost and would it have been approved by the chief of police if someone actually tried to pursue it. So it's possible, but maybe not likely. Do we think there are other victims out there? Absolutely. And if you're listening, we believe you. You're not alone, and it's not your fault. As of now, there has been no trial or plea agreement set in place for Angelo Aliano Jr., so we will have to wait and see how it pans out. He is, after all, innocent in the eyes of the law until proven guilty. I said it. Aliano is currently charged with four counts of first-degree rape, and three counts of second-degree burglary. And regarding the Aliano case, if you or someone you know has any information regarding victims or any unusual behavior, please contact the Vernon or Manchester Police Department. I will put the contact information in the show notes, or of course you can just Google it. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, please reach out to your local law enforcement agency and report your attack and get the services and support that you are entitled to. Even if your attack was not just in the last few days, 24 hours, 48 hours, whatever, your rape should still be reported. Many perpetrators of sexual attacks are repeat offenders, and they will repeat because they're not caught and they're getting away with it. 
So the more often their victims report their crimes, the stronger the prosecution's evidence is going to be when the case does get brought before the court. And that is the case of the serial rape victims of Manchester and Vernon, Connecticut from 2001 to 2008. So as soon as we find out any new information about the charges and the trial slash possible plea slash whatever case against Angelo Aliano Jr., you guys will be the first to know. Um, Of course, it's in my Google alerts. Moving on to this week's unknown, unsolved, could we, will we, I think we absolutely will, um, find the perpetrator of an unsolved crime. Yes, I have actually another serial rape case that was listed on the cold case um, website for Hartford, Connecticut. Hartford is a county that um, that houses or homes, is a home to Manchester and Vernon. These here are four very like ridiculously like copycat one after the other um, home invasion, nighttime rapes that happened in June and July of 1984. It is very weird. I think that there aren't any others after that. So maybe this piece of shit is is actually dead or maybe left the country because no other hits are in CODIS um, from what I could tell, at least from this, from this blurb on the cold case website. Sexual assaults that took place in the summer of 1984 in Bloomfield, Middletown, Rocky Hill, and Windsor and there is a $50,000 reward. In August of 2004, a Superior Court judge signed Connecticut's first John Doe arrest warrant, charging a suspect identified only by his DNA profile with four counts of kidnapping in the first degree with a firearm. The warrant was issued based on investigation by the cold case unit of the Office of the, State, of the, Office of the Chief State's Attorney in conjunction with the Connecticut State Police Forensic Laboratory, and the police departments in Bloomfield, Middletown, Rocky Hill, and Windsor. The state of Connecticut is offering a reward of up to $50,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the individual responsible for the crimes. The warrant charges John Doe and the following crimes. On June 3, 1984, a 25-year-old female was sexually assaulted in her apartment at the Sutton Apartments in Bloomfield by an armed man. The attacker entered through a sliding glass door, and the victim awoke with him standing next to the bed. The man placed his hand over the victim's mouth and told her not to scream or he would shoot her and her roommate. The intruder also said that he had just shot someone at a convenience store. The intruder told the victim to smell the barrel of the gun. He blindfolded her, sexually assaulted her, and then remained in the apartment for what the victim described as an eternity. The intruder disabled the phone, which was found in the rear yard, searched the residence for valuables, and drank a beer from the refrigerator. The victim remained in her bed until she felt the intruder had gone and summoned the police. Then another attack happened on June 26th of 84 to a 30-year-old woman in Middletown. He also had, both of them, both times he had entered through a sliding glass door. That's going to be an MO. And in this case, he also disabled the telephone, searched for valuables and jewelry, and also asked her if there was any food in the fridge. A month later, on July 21st of 1984, again, an unknown man came into the home of a 24-year-old woman, sexually assaulted her in the Rivers Bend apartments in Windsor. She was also sleeping. He came in through the sliding glass door, 
put a gun to her head, blindfolded her like he always does, and sexually assaulted her, unfortunately, like he always does. He again disabled the phone, searched the house for valuables and money. This time he's tampering with the clocks and running a faucet in to like disguise the fact that he's leaving the house. Finally, on July 24th of 1984 is the final victim. She was a 24-year-old woman in the West Ledge Apartments in Rocky Hill. She was actually sleeping with her two-year-old daughter in the bed with her when he came in. She woke because he was sitting. He had sat himself down next to her on the bed, told her not to scream, and began touching her. She was able to convince him to allow her to move the child into another room, which is, which is what he did. After he had blindfolded her, he guided her to bring the child outside to a different, a different bedroom, and then he sexually assaulted her. Once again, he disabled the telephone, searched the apartment for valuables and money, and then got himself something to eat. This time, he also decided to leave the water running to make noise in the apartment so she didn't know that he had left. These crimes remain unsolved despite extensive investigation that drew upon the expertise and experience of the Special Task Force of Detectives from Police Departments Bloomfield, Middletown, Rocky Hill, and Windsor, and the Connecticut State Police. Subsequent developments in the technology led to the DNA analysis of evidence from the scenes of the four attacks linking them to the same unidentified man. Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection Forensic Science Laboratory continues to conduct routine searches of its DNA databank and the National DNA Databank CODIS, of course, to place the DNA profile with a name. For any information you have, or if this has been your experience, please report the crime or the information to either of the police departments in the four towns. So this is just to highlight how many serial rape cases there are out there that have not been solved yet. And I think this one is definitely going to be solved because clearly Connecticut has an, a law okaying the family mapping and the forensic genealogy. We do hope there is a resolution and there is an identified perpetrator of these crimes and he is brought to justice. Um, although I said earlier, it's, it's very weird that he had four very similar like hits right on top of each other in the, in the summer of 1984 and we haven't heard from him since. Depending on how old he was, maybe he's dead by now. Maybe he, like I said, moved out of the state. Probably out of the country, though. If he is still alive, he either completely stopped, which is very weird because he had a very common run, so to speak. Um, but then if he was still committing these crimes or even after 1984, he those crimes, surely at least a few of them would have been reported as well, and they would be on this list here. In any case, I do hope that we can get some justice for these victims, just as um, it looks like the victims of Manchester and Vernon are going to get their justice. Although, unfortunately, those victims, are more, we believe more than one has passed so far. Although, unfortunately, we do believe that more than one of those ladies has since passed. And that is it for this week. Um, please, again, I, I really appreciate if you would just share the podcast. You know, definitely check me out on the socials and um, interact. Send me any case suggestions. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Um, let me know what you think about any of our, you know, the, the motives, any of the how can we, could we have found him type um, questions that do come up in these, um, in these episodes. And um, I will see you in two weeks. Bye.